The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by the Reverend Dr. Craig Troxell. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. So we return to the prologue of the Gospel of John. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 4 through 9. John chapter 1, uh, looking at verses 4 through 9, but let us go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we do pray that you administer your grace and your truth to us by the Spirit, and that you would both shine on our sin and our Savior, and show us both our need, but also the greatness of our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so those of you who are Lord of the Ring nerds, Tolkien nerds, uh, remember, all three of you, um, <laughs> remember uh, the time when the fellowship visits the Lady of the Wood, Galadriel. And she has a, a gift there for everyone in the company. She finally turns to Frodo and she gives to him a crystal vial. And he looks into the vial and what he sees there are the rays of white light that come from Arundel's star. And as she gives uh, to Frodo this vial, she says this. She says, it will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in dark places when all of the lights go out. And as you remember, when he is in Shelob's lair in that dark cave, he remembers the violet, pulls it out, and the book says that its silver flame grew into a blazing light like a white torch, afflicting its brightness upon that darkness. Now you notice in our passage this morning, in this section of the prologue, that what John is drawing attention to is the nature of the word as light. But you notice he begins with life. And so we want to uh, think first of all about the light, and then the light, and then the true light, this important, important phrase he uses in this section of the prologue. It says, the word is life. In him was life, he says in verse 4. Not through him, not by him, not from him. It says, in him. Only God has life in himself. And so you see in this not-so-subtle way, John is again continuing to make his case for the divine nature of the Word. And life is one of the most important subjects uh, that Jesus revisits throughout uh, this gospel account. Repeatedly, he comes back to this in chapter 3. Why has God sent the Son? So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's in chapter 4 where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
Um, In chapter uh, 10, he says, I came that men might have life and have it more abundantly. And significantly in chapter 5, he says, as the father has life in himself, so the son also has life in himself. And so we see that the word is the life possessor. And in the Gospel of John, we'll see that he is the life giver. But you see how he quickly passes over this and goes immediately to this metaphor of the light to show that he is the light bearer, and in the Gospel of John, he will be the light bringer. Notice what it says. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light of men. Now, when we see this idea of light, we think of God uh, as light. Usually we associate that with the excellency of God. It's pointing to to his glory, like in Isaiah 60, pointing to his holiness, like in 1 John 1.5. But this here is not talking about God's character. It's pointing us very directly, very precisely to the purpose of the light, namely that it comes with regard to our greatest need. His life is the light of men. It's a light that functions on behalf of men and women, and it points to this great problem of darkness. The light comes to shine in the darkness, he says, that God sent his word to bring salvation into a condemned world, and he likens it to to light coming piercing into the darkness of this world. And scripture is very clear about this, that you and I by nature have hearts of darkness, hearts that are shrouded by, by unbelief so that we cannot see. Now, he says not everybody wants this light. He says the darkness has not overcome it. To be, uh, we could see that here is the darkness has not understood it, not comprehended it. We learn later on in this gospel, um, it doesn't want the light because it loves the darkness. But for those who believe, the truth and the grace of Christ penetrates into lives that are blackened by sin so that they can see. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So very simply, you and I understand the gospel in these terms, that this is light coming into the world uh, to expose darkness, to shatter darkness, to penetrate the darkness of sin. But you see, there's something further that he says that is crucial for us to, uh, to appreciate the nature of this light, and his power. In this he conveys in verse 9, when he describes this word as not just a light, but he says it is the true light, which gives light to everyone. This is what is coming into the world. This is the sort of light uh, that we're thinking of here, that the word is true light. And true light points to the uniqueness of the word, to the uniqueness of Jesus, that the world has never seen anything like this. And so when we see the word true here, he doesn't mean something that is genuine as opposed to what is false or to what is fake. That's not what he's talking about. He means the word true here in the sense of something at its best or something at its highest expression, something that reaches its epitome or its acme, uh, the creme de la creme, or some of you might say the bee's knees. Okay, nobody talks like that. But anyway, uh, let me illustrate it this way. Let me ask you a question. Tell me, what is a true point guard in the game of basketball? A true point guard. And you would say, well, it's somebody who dribbles and can pass. And I would say, congratulations, you've just described every single guard that's ever played the game of basketball in the history of the world. No, what is a true point guard? And then you would say, oh, 
Oh, this is a person who can break a full court press single-handedly by the expertise of his dribble or his passing, who can thread the needle for that assist. That is a true point guard. That's getting the point. If I was to ask you this question, uh, who has a true singing voice? And you would say, oh, well, somebody who hits their notes, somebody who has a nice, good tone, excellent timber. And, of course, we're describing Johnny Cash. <laughs> Clearly, if you were thinking Justin Bieber, <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> so this is what he means by true, and this is the way he uses it in this gospel, that Christ is the true vine. He's the true food. He's the true drink. In chapter 6, it says that Jesus is the true bread compared to the bread, the manna, that Moses gave. And in John 6, he's not saying, well, that bread that, that Moses gave, that's all a lie. It was an illusion. It's all fake. That's not the point he's making there. The point he's making there is that what God gave through Moses cannot begin to compare what is given through Christ. Manna is a pretty amazing miracle. But if you eat that bread, it will not give you eternal life. But if you eat the bread that Christ offers, this is eternal life. And so this is what he means by true light, that Jesus is the epitome of the light that God has given to us. This is the ultimate revelation of God. There's nothing else that compares. There's nothing else that can save in comparison to this. There's others that came and spoke with knowledge of the truth, with the light that God gave to them, like John the Baptist, he says here. In chapter 5, he's called the shining light. He was a great man, unparalleled as a prophet. He was utterly unique, sent by God. But he's not the light. He's not the true light. His ministry has to yield to a greater ministry. He must decrease, and the true light must increase. He comes to testify to the light. It's Christ and Christ alone that is the true light. There's no other like him. And he alone can say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. As it says here, that he is the light. And the reason I emphasize this is because we need this true light for when all of the lights go out. Let me ask you a question. It says here, the darkness. Do you think the Holy Spirit is exaggerating when it describes our world condemned in sin, sinners in darkness? Is that an overstatement? Do you believe this? The darkness is true darkness. The sinners that you and I talked about the gospel, they are truly lost. They are truly blind. They live in a despair that is so thick, that is so dense, they cannot see out of it. This book is filled with examples of those that were walking in the darkness of sin, or living in a world where they felt the effects of that sin, the Samaritan woman who'd been in five failed relationships. It was not working. An invalid who'd been in that state for 35 years. Imagine that. Or a man who'd been dead for four, four days. There's a world that is underneath the weight of this, of this darkness 
Christ continuously was addressing people who are sheep without a shepherd. He's speaking to people who have no direction in their lives, who are without life and without, without hope, people who cannot see. And we will preach to people many times who know this, and are sitting in that pew, and they are just longing for some slender ray of hope to come from the word of God, to come from your lips. See, that's the question. Do we believe this? Do we believe that Christ is the true light? It kind of depends a little bit. If you believe darkness is true darkness, what do you think we're bringing with the gospel? You see what he says in verse 9? This is the true light that gives light to, to everyone. There is no one beyond the reach of his power and his gracious hand. His grace is truly like this blazing white torch that afflicts its brightness upon the darkness of people's sin. This is an invasive grace that comes and it cannot be withstood. It cannot be overturned, overshadowed. It cannot be concealed. This is the gospel we preach. It is a real salvation. It brings true deliverance. Why? Because Christ is the true light. That is the gospel we preach. And that's the gospel we must believe in as we preach and as we share the gospel with others. But this gospel also reminds us of something else we preach. How was this salvation obtained? It meant that Christ first had the taste of this darkness. You know, it's interesting to us as we read the gospel accounts, as we approach the the suffering of Christ, how does he think about it? How does he talk about it? How does scripture describe it? Do you remember when that great company came to the garden to arrest Jesus? And what does he say? He says, this is your hour, the power of darkness. Here he is, the light of the world. And he's acknowledging that it's become the time for him to bow before the grim realities of a sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. At the cross, what do, we, what do we read there? We read that the light of the sun failed from the, the third hour to the sixth hour, the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that there was darkness over all the land. Isn't that interesting? You see, even the sky is picturing how the cross is the hour when the kingdom of darkness overshadows the Son of God. Now, the Son, once before, was a servant of God and served his purposes when it hesitated in its path in order to assist Joshua to bring salvation for God's people. But now it's doing it again. Creation casting this shroud over a scene it cannot bear to watch as the light of life offers himself for those who are dead in sin. You see, what we have here is a picture that the Son of God cannot fellowship with the Father of lights when at the same time he's fellowshipping with the darkness of our sin. This is what is necessary for him. This is how that he is uh, going to endure everything in, in order to satisfy the penalty of sin's deepest miseries. What does it mean to be utterly forsaken and to be alone and to be in the dark? That's exactly what's happening here. This too is part of the gospel. But in the gospel, we also preach this, in him is life. And that this is the one who rises to shatter all those pretensions to power that the grave has. The shadow of death cannot hold him. This is the one who is the resurrection and the life. And what you and I must believe is that the very same power that we see here in the gospel and how it is purchased for us in the death and resurrection of Christ, this very same power reveals itself every single time the light of God's grace afflicts 
of the darkness of our sin. This is what the gospel is, that God's grace displaces those dark clouds of unbelief. It opens our eyes to see and to believe. That's why it's so important to believe that faith is not a leap into the dark, it's a step into the light. It is a step into the truth, into what can be seen and and known. Once again, what God is doing is he's separating the light from the darkness, just as he has before. At creation, what did God do? He separated, separated the light from the darkness through the sun and the moon. At Goshen, what did he do? He plagued Egypt with darkness while Israel lived in the light. What did he do with the Red Sea? The glory cloud separates Israel from Pharaoh's army so that there was light on the one hand and darkness on the other. And the same thing happens with the gospel, that God separates us from the darkness and brings us into his wonderful light. This is where we walk as children of light, confident in this gospel, in the power of Christ, who is our life and is our true light. And that's how we are to walk until that day when all of the lights go out. Our night will be no more in heaven. The scripture says we will not need the sun, we will not need the moon or lamp. The glory of God will be our light. And we will dwell in the brilliance in the splendor of our Savior, in the Word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would help us to believe what we believe, that we would see Christ in all of his glory and all of his power, and how he can save us, the most wretched of sinners. Help us not to doubt who he is and what he can do. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.